All right, let's pray before we get started. Father, though we don't understand exactly how you are at work being timeless within our system confined by time, we know that you are doing it and that uh, we have glimpses through your word as to what you are doing. Please help us to consider the words that we use, the, the thoughts and the beliefs behind those words as we pray, your will be done. Give us a greater understanding of what that means tonight through our discussion. And Lord, inform and direct our prayers so that you would be exalted. Amen. All right. So my anticipation is this chapter might take a couple weeks. We'll see how it goes. But there are so many key things, and I'm curious... I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I've got eight things that I anticipate getting to. We'll see. But I'm hoping that either A, through the discussion, through the reading beforehand, we learned something or gained a better perspective on something in regards to God's will. Uh, but also that if there are questions, that we can work through those. Because this is not an easy topic by any stretch. And this is not an exhaustive study on God's will. There are many books that have been written about that. But he, he does a, a very good job of laying out the, the extremes as to how we think about God's will. And I think he does a really good job of um, helping us to find that balance. So I'm looking forward to everyone else's comments uh, and or questions. All right, so starting off page 93, anything jump out? Uh, or lead you to a question in this first section on page 93 or 94? Chapter 6, yes. Oh, by the way, who, who read it this week? Okay. <laughs> Looks like I'm going to be doing a lot of talking. <laughs> uh, I, I'll, let me say this. If you didn't read it, please read it. There's so much good information. We're not going to be able to touch on everything, but there's so many good things. And pray before you read it, and then read it. If our spirits are truly desiring God, He will help us to understand. He will help us to, to answer the questions that we have so that we can understand Him more and, and honor Him more. All right, so anything on 93? All right, I'm going to go then. Right in the middle of the paragraph, he says, The plain fact is none of us can comprehend precisely how prayer functions in the infinite mind and plan of God. So this is something maybe we, not have, we may not have put together in those words, but we realize, right, we can't fully grasp how our prayers work in conjunction with what God's doing. But this chapter does attempt to give us some insight, some understanding as to how that works. Okay. Yes, sir. Does that mean we, we should know this or not? So... We'll cover it. We'll cover some different options of what that actually means and what it looks like. Um, but I will say this. We can't 
fully comprehend it. Because, like I was saying when I was praying, God is eternal, acting both outside of, which we have no clue how that works, and simultaneously inside of a... uh, a system constricted by time that he's created. And so, from what we understand, God being eternal, being omnipotent, being omniscient, being omnipresent, sees all of time at once. So, there is no past or present. It's all now. And yet, we are here now, and again, we can't really comprehend this. Our minds are too small. But time is elapsing. But for God, time is not elapsing because He sees it all at once. So... So my first thought is, we can't know that it's shrinking. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but I do believe there is a limited amount of time. God created time at creation, and then there will be the ushering in of eternity at a certain point after the millennial reign. And from then on, from my understanding, everyone who is alive will be eternal. And so there will be no more time. Up until that point, I'll be, is, I'll be glad when there's no more time. Yeah. I'm tired of watching the clock. <laughs> <laughs> is, is it this year or next year that they're getting rid of daylight savings? Is it next year? Because I know they voted on it, right, and passed? Well, it passed, it passed the Senate, but it hasn't passed the House. Oh, uh, okay. We, we, talk about it every year. we ought to go by the farmer's time. Sunrise, sundown. <laughs> there you go. What about Mikey? All right. <laughs> 94 <clears throat> or 95, still in that first section. Uh, I got a kick out of the Wesley and Whitfield. So, just as a, as a general question, how many of you don't understand the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism? Everybody have a basic idea? No? Okay. So, I'm just going to give a, a, a basic idea. John Calvin was around shortly after Martin Luther. So Martin Luther started the Reformation. John Calvin said, okay, we're getting back to the Bible, but what actually does the Bible say? Because for hundreds of years, we've only been told what the Catholic Church told us. So he wrote a book called Institutes. And a very small percentage of people can read that book. And (laughs) I mean, it is so in-depth. But he covered hundreds of uh, guidelines that said, here's what Scripture teaches us. Shortly after that, uh, a man named Jacob Arminius uh, came and he was a theologian as well. He read the Institutes and he said, I disagree with these five areas of what John Calvin says the Bible teaches. And from what I understand, he didn't make a huge deal out of it, but his contemporaries, some people that really uh, 
were riding his coattails made a huge deal about these five areas. And if you've heard the five points of Calvin, it's a misnomer because it wasn't five points of Calvin. It was five opposing points of Arminius. So, through, from that time until now, there has been a back and forth uh, with the church as to whether the majority of people were more in line with Arminius or more people were more in line with Calvin. Today, more people are in line with Arminius. And I think that's because a lot of the majority of the uh, seminaries teach more that idea. And so to summarize, there, there, we can go in depth. I'm not going to go in depth. From my perspective as somebody who agrees with Calvin, I'll try to be fair. Calvin had a very high view of God's sovereignty. Arminius seemed to have a higher view of man. And so, one of the key principles that Arminius disagreed upon, to me, is one of the most heretical teachings that, has, that many people in the church believe today, and that is that men... Calvin taught that the Bible teaches that men are... Um, uh, oh my goodness, totally depraved. So at birth, and anybody who's had children knows it's true, they are depraved from the womb. And so Calvin taught that the Bible teaches that we are born sinners. Arminius disagreed and said, no, we're born good, we just learn to be sinners. So that is a huge discrepancy that leads to a further divide um, along other areas. So, to put it simply, generally speaking, somebody who would say that they're more in line with Calvin would have a much higher view of God's sovereignty and a lower view of, of man, man's capabilities. And then the opposite would be true for somebody who is more Arminian. Now, that doesn't mean across the board because there are variances. There are, I would say, there are godly people on both sides. And I'll leave it at that. Well, I wouldn't say they're not telling the truth. I would say... All right. Again, I don't want to go too far into this, but I want to address a point. I would say their motives are good. All right, so for example, one of the five points of disagreements is... Uh, Oh my goodness. I always forget the titles. Limited atonement. There we go. So, limited atonement, what John Calvin would say is that in God's sovereignty, the Bible teaches that everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be saved. So, the understanding is that God wrote all those names in that book before, he, before creation. He's not writing it as time goes on because he sees all of time at once. So he wrote the Lamb's Book of Life, and Calvin's conclusion was that there are a certain number of people that God is going to save. And so if we're on, every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we think... There's an aspect of unfairness there. I mean, let's be honest. Because we think, so my child or my spouse or my parents 
might never be saved because God decided that he's not going to save them, that is not fair. So I think that is the motivation for a lot of, their, a lot of the views of somebody who would be considered an Arminian is they look at the points and they come to the conclusion that that's not fair. The problem from my perspective is they're looking at it the wrong way. From my perspective, anyone getting saved is not fair. So we should be surprised that anyone gets saved, not disappointed that everybody doesn't get saved. So that is a big area of difference in perspective. And like I said, I, I think generally speaking, somebody who falls on the Arminian side has a much higher opinion of the value of man. Yeah, Jonathan. Is it free, free will a big aspect of that too? Yes. For man to have a free will that they believe that? Yeah, and, and it's funny because I remember thinking when I first when somebody first explained this to me, my head almost exploded because I was trying to understand it. And the conclusion that I came to was that man has free will as far as he is concerned. The problem is we're not concerned very far <laughs> because God is in control of all of those things. And again, this is one of, these, one of those things that we can't fully comprehend. You know, when we see, as we've talked the last few weeks, both in our discussion time and on Sunday morning, God does things and then we see in human language, and I think that's the only, that's the reason it, they're so, it's so confusing because our language is limited. But it says that God relented or God turned. He got God repented or God changed. And I think that's one of the questions that I'm going to ask. You know, can you help explain how that works when I get there? <laughs> but we see, in, in my opinion, the story of Jonah is the best example. God said, go and tell Nineveh that I'm going to destroy them for their wickedness. Jonah, by way of whale or great fish, uh, gets deposited there and says, okay, I guess I don't have a choice now. Tells them about God's coming wrath and they repent greatly. Like fully, completely, not half-heartedly. And they turn from their sin and it says... God showed mercy to them. God relented. God turned from what he said. So, the question is, did God change his mind or did he orchestrate things leading to what he knew was going to happen and it appeared that he changed his mind, but he never actually changed his mind. So, that's the side that I would fall on. He never actually changes his mind. He just guides things. He says what needs to be said to lead man to the way he wants man to go. So, to me, that makes the most sense is God doesn't change. He guides. Yes? Yes. In, so here, here's the, the thing for all of us. The minute before God opens our eyes to his truth and allows us to understand, and that's a whole other topic, you know, what happens first? Is it, is it God opening the eyes or is it man's belief? And if we understand that we are totally depraved, we can take no credit for our faith. It is God's grace, God's gift. 
No man seeks after God, or woman for that matter. So, to try to take credit for it, I think we dishonor God. So the minute, up until the minute before he opens our eyes, we are doomed to hell for eternity. Once he opens our eyes, the door is open for us to, to come in. And that's another part of it. Can you lose your salvation? You know, do you choose God or does he choose you? So almost every aspect of disagreement revolves around how someone gets saved and then what happens thereafter. So there's a really good book I have on that if anybody wants to, to kind of see both sides and gain a better understanding of it. I think it's important to understand what the different views are so that we can really dissect and understand those things for ourselves. I know some godly people that you know would say, "Okay, I agree with, you know, three of those things or four of those things." Uh, but I'm not sure that I agree with all five. And ultimately, what we each should do is, is wrestle with those things and seek to understand them, ask for God's guidance to understand them, because it does affect how we live. Understanding, I, one of the greatest, uh, I can't remember the exact words, but somebody asked Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is probably the, one of the most famous, um, I'm going to say, Calvinists, okay? Because, so here's the thing. No true Christian is going to identify themselves primarily as a Calvinist, okay? But there is this constant divide. And so there is always a question as to, do you agree more with what Calvin taught or with what Arminius taught? Or with what Arminius disagreed about, from my perspective. Uh, so, most people who would be in line with Calvin, um, Charles Spurgeon is one of the pr- most preeminent individuals throughout history who agreed with, with what Calvin said. And somebody asked him one time and said, if you believe in God's sovereignty, you know, then why do you share the gospel? He said, because I don't know who God's chosen. He said, if God put a yellow stripe on the back of every person that was going to get saved, I'd go around lifting up everybody's shirt to see if they had a yellow stripe. So, yes, that's, that, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I have a page 93. Okay. Right. So those are the two. Right. So he, what he's doing is he's giving the two extremes. So he's saying on one side, somebody will say, and this is what is normally defined as a hyper Calvinist, somebody will say, we don't even need to pray. God's going to do what he's going to do. We don't need to give the gospel. He's going to save who he's going to save. That, I would, full, I would wholeheartedly, completely disagree with that attitude. Because we don't know, but we do know, we don't know who's going who's to listen, who's going to get saved, but we do know that faith comes by hearing, hearing of the word of God. The other extreme view, one second, Mike, is 
that we have to do it. That it's impossible for people to get saved unless man does it. So again, there's a much greater emphasis on man's work and we change God's mind through our prayers so he does what we ask him to do. So again, a, a greater emphasis on man's ability to um, either control or affect God's will. Both views, I would say, are unbiblical because there are so many verses that, that teach otherwise. I, I truly believe, like most things, the reality is somewhere in the middle. The reality is we have responsibility and God is sovereign. So our prayers, like you're saying, should our desire should be that our prayers are in line with God's will. Hence, this whole chapter. What were we going to say, Mike? Oh, just real quickly, you reminded me of, uh, and I can't remember who it was that said it, but they were talking about trying to explain Calvinism. And sure, God knows who, who's going to be saved and everything. But as he says, he's the author and finisher of our faith. And uh, authors, when they write a book, they may know the end, but the journey is to show you the whole book and to have you go through the book. And that's where we are. Uh, and actually, you're right. There's a lot of people that, um, even preachers, who started saying, oh, we don't have to do witnessing and stuff. We'll just let the chips fall with me. And it didn't really work out. <laughs> God has a job for us. Paul. misnomer in prayer is we think God needs our prayers. And it's quite the opposite. We need our prayers for us to A, align with God's will, to learn more about God's will, and to, like, like we've been doing here, is expounding on our understanding of God through our prayers. So as we, as we pray more, we're actually learning, we're actually teaching ourselves about God better. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and if you, I have the benefit of this being my fourth time going through this book. When you look at all that is being taught, you can summarize it. I haven't formulated this, so I'm just going to try to do it off the top of my head right now. We pray to grow our faith actively um, through submission to him. Something to that effect. Because a prayer, when done correctly, is active submission and obedience to God's word. And so our desire should be to do it well. And so as we do it well, we are doing it well because we are more informed of who he is and what he desires, and we are falling in line with that. And every, every prayer done out of humility, in faith, and obedience brings great honor to God. It does not change him. He, exactly, it changes us. You know, it's just like, to a certain extent, you know, if you've ever seen, I'm sure there are other movies, but The Karate Kid comes to mind. So the second Karate Kid movie, when uh, the, the two guys opposing uh, Mr. Miyagi and, and Daniel, they had that piece of wood, that really hard wood that they punched over and over and over and over. And what happened was they made very little dents in the wood, but their, their bones, their skin, turned as hard as rock because it began to mimic through constant pounding. And so their fists took on the hardness of the wood to a certain extent. And similarly, as we pray and pray rightly, 
we take on the image of our Lord. All right. <laughs> That's the first one. <laughs> All right. Uh, 94 or 95? Well, 94 is the story for the most part. Um, you have something on 95? Because I do, if you don't. All right, go ahead. Right now, right? All right, so let me do this. I'll, I'll touch on the one that I did because this is one of my notes that I wanted to make sure we covered and talked about, and I think it'll summarize this whole section. So the first whole paragraph where it says um, the Bible, the Bible is unequivocal about God's absolute sovereignty, yet within his sovereignty, he commands us to exercise our responsible wills in certain areas, including beseeching him in prayer. If God did not act in response to prayer, Jesus' teaching about prayer would be futile and meaningless and all commands to pray pointless. Our task is not to solve the dilemma of how God's sovereignty works with human responsibility, but to believe and act on what God commands us about prayer. That's the main point of this whole chapter. There are aspects that we cannot fully understand, but all of these aspects we can better understand through reading them, through considering them, through looking up these verses, through praying about them. We can be better informed so that when we are praying, we are praying, as Norma said, in line with God's will, not opposing him. Because you guys know that I can be a bit abrasive because I'm very passionate, you might call it other things, uh, about the things that I believe. And I believe our heart is the most important aspect of prayer, but our words make a huge difference. And when we are lazy with our words, I believe we are dishonoring to our God. And it's not that we have to be wordsmiths. It's not that we have to say these perfect phrases. It's that we have to choose to say what we mean and to mean what we say, and say them in faith, to say them in humility, and not just to let words fall out of our mouth. And that is what I'm so passionate about, is that we, as a church, would all consider our words and consider, you know, when I say this, is there faith behind it? Is there humility? Is there meaning or is it just a throw-in word? Is it a throw-in phrase? Is it something that I heard somebody else say that sounds good? Am I trying to appeal more to others that, are, that might be listening than to God? I'm hoping that we all would be wrestling with these things, striving to understand, not perfection, but the pursuit of holiness through our prayers. Okay. Did you want to add anything else, Jonathan? On 95? Or up to uh, Paul, for, for Paul, is God's will inevitable? I like that part. He says, when we pray, we are to pray in accord with God's will. His will is to become our will. We're praying for his will to prevail over all the earth and heaven. Well, I like the way he puts that. Yeah. And again, this is... This is the idea of this whole chapter. You know, MacArthur has broken up this prayer into chapters so that we can consider the words. And again, I think this proves the point. Every single word in this prayer has a purpose. 
There are no wasted syllables. There are no wasted thoughts, ideas, or words. Every single word is so concise, is so purposeful, is so impactful. And that's why we have, you know, 18-page chapters on four words. Because he's saying so much it, with, with so few words, which I think, again, in my opinion, in my experience, I would line up more with Whitfield. We don't have to have two-hour prayers to get our point across. Now, should there be times where we spend much time in prayer? Absolutely. But I don't think it's required that we spend two hours every single time we pray. I think, I believe that if we are sensitive to God's leading, our prayers are going to vary. We might have five-minute prayers. We might have 50-minute prayers. I've had the privilege of spending hours in prayer all by myself, and it was tremendous. And it wasn't constant prayer. It was praying and then reading the Bible and then praying some more and reading the Bible and praying some more and reading the Bible. And if you've never had the opportunity to do that without distraction, it's amazing. I drove my car as far north as I could go without getting too far and just parked in a field, nobody around, and just had my Bible and God. And it was, it was amazing. All right, page 96 or 97, starting with bitter resentment. Yeah. So, on page 97 is my next point. And I would say this is probably, in my opinion, where most Christians struggle. The passive resignation. So he says, in the middle of that first paragraph, they pray for his will to be done only because he has commanded them to do so. But that's certainly not a prayer of faith. It's more like a prayer of capitulation. Believers who pray that way accept God's will with a defeatist attitude. And then into the next paragraph, too many believers have weak prayer lives because they don't believe their prayers accomplish anything. So in my experience, again, I think this is where most of us are tempted or most of us fall in error, is that we pray, maybe we don't pray as much as we know we should or could, but we pray and we don't necessarily believe that God is going to answer, similar to uh, the disciples praying, as it says, for Peter to be rescued. And then he comes to the door and they're like, wait, what? Hello? Did you think you're pray you were talking to an idol? You were praying. Don't, we shouldn't be so surprised, right? And, and this, is, this is the struggle, I think, for us. Number one, we, cannot presume, we should not presume upon God that he is going to do our bidding. And yet, we should not be surprised when he answers our requests. And so that is why it's so important for us to learn to pray and to pray alongside God in with a desire for his will to be done because we will trust him and when he does answer, we will praise him. Because when we pray without faith, we have no conviction. And then when something happens, we're just as likely to say, oh, it probably would have happened anyways even if I didn't pray. And my guess is we've all fallen into that rut at times. Paul? Recently with Stephen, I mean, he's been praying for years for him, and God's bringing him to his knees. And next thing you know, he's lying in the hospital bed in a coma, and everybody's freaking out, going, oh no, 
No, that was God's death at work. Right. He answered our prayer. That was an answer to prayer. We might not like the answer, but that was it. that was in God's will, you know, timing. How He's decided to do it. Absolutely. That was amazing. Absolutely. So Same thing with Derek. Yeah, and that's, I mean, one of the hardest things for us to pray is, and there's different, there are different ways to phrase this, but for God to break us or to break others. But that's what we need. We need, every one of us here needs to be broken. Every one of us here has an area of our lives that we are not submitting to God as we should. We have areas that we say, okay, maybe later. I'm not ready yet. All of us should be continually praying that God would break us. And hopefully, you know, eventually, hopefully in this lifetime it happens. It, it can. Yes. So, I've used this example before. I don't know if in this class, but I know in the teen class. As a parent, when you have children, your desire is that they obey. And so, when they obey, you rejoice, but at times you can take it for granted. And we have a child that continues to obey without a problem. Now, I haven't had that in my house, but there have been stretches. <laughs> there have been stretches, you know, but when a child obeys, we have great relief, right? When that child constantly disobeys, we have great anguish. And in our minds, we think, oh, you know, it, it reminds me of the prodigal son story. You know, the one is obedience and the other one is off the rails. And, you know, the obedient one ends up being the one that's far from God because he's a... Uh, uh, what do they call that? A conformist, right? He conforms because he doesn't want friction. And they look for the path of least resistance, but their heart is not in it. Whereas the one who's repeatedly making mistakes, <clears throat> they're, all they're doing is following their heart. It's just the problem is their heart is deceitfully wicked and they don't understand it, right? So what we ultimately want is we want to passionately follow after God and to deny ourselves. So we don't want either one of those. We want something in the middle. And <clears throat> when there's obedience, there's a lack of attention. When there's disobedience, there's a great focus. And I think similarly with God. So as we recognize our sin, there is an increased... Um, working, I think, in a sense, of God and the Holy Spirit, bringing things into our lives. And so when we pray to be changed, yes, he brings those things into our lives to challenge us, to change us. And yet, we don't always uh, remember those lessons to the point that we never need to be taught them again. So it is definitely a constant struggle. All right. 98 or 99? Yes, sir. So that's the last paragraph of passive resignation. And let me just add the sentence before that too. Prayer is not a vain duty to be performed for the sake of obedience only. 
That may seem like good motive, but its, effective, its effect is no different from the hypocritical Pharisees who prayed for show. We must pray in faith, believing that our prayers do make a difference to God. Yeah, that was one of my, my eight points as well. It's so important for us to understand that if we are to pray, to pray effectively, we must believe. It, it, it's this, I don't want to say duality, but there's this need for humility, but a need for faith. And sometimes it's hard to get there on both sides. We might be humble, but not believe, or we might believe, but not be humble. And so it's that constant battle to kind of be right there, humble enough to realize that God knows what is good for us, uh, but have a strong enough faith to believe that he is answering us in what is going on. You know, we could look back at so many things that have happened in the, even just since I've been at this church. There are many things I'm sure that we can think of the, the, where we as a church or individually thought, I wonder why this is happening. Why is this happening now? And I'm sure many of you can think of things that have happened just in the last few years. Why did this happen? Why did God do this? And there's one answer to draw people closer to him. All right, what was your other thing, Jonathan? Well, you, you did the other thing, but uh, further down in 98, the next section has got a little line of well on earth. Um, I have trouble with this section. I don't know if he's just not including some things that would help to understand it or what, but I was like, no, that's not right. This is not right. <laughs> he is just wrong. <laughs> you blaspheming John MacArthur? All right, which, anything, any part specifically? Well, the first paragraph, there's a sentence in there that says, thus his, referring to God, his will is not inevitable. And I'm like, where does he get off making such a statement? Because he, he's talking from a point of fatalism. So he's making an argument saying, if this was your belief, you would fall on this side. You would fall on this side, okay. Correct. The way he sets things up, it's, it's like he's missing a few well, and that's, yeah, that's why his, his heading is a question. That's because they they, right before that sentence, it says there, many who reject his reign. Yeah. So let's, uh, based off that, right. be the correct premise. I think he just leaves out little pieces and it helps explain, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it makes us think. That stinks. <laughs> too much seminary stuff and not enough basic, you know. <laughs> well... This is meat, right? We've got to chew on it. Yeah. And this reminded me of the message that I shared at the beginning. Who listened to that message, if God is sovereign, why pray? Oh, you all fail. You need to listen to that message. It is so foundational. Please, that is your homework. I sent it in, the, I think, the first email. Joe Rigney, if God is sovereign, why pray? Listen to that message. It is so foundational. One of the points he makes, I'll say now, and so when you hear it, you'll say, oh yeah. But he, he uses an example. Who was it that used the example of the author? All right, yeah. So he uses an example of um, the Chronicles of Narnia. And he says, who killed the white witch? Now, who hasn't seen the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay. So, a couple, half the group. Great. All right. So, there's a really bad person called the White Witch, and she ends up being killed by Aslan, the lion, who is a metaphor for Jesus. And so, she's kind of like Satan. He kills her. And so, he asks the question, who killed the White Witch? Aslan killed the white witch. 
Who killed the white witch? C.S. Lewis killed the white witch. Right? So C.S. Lewis, as the author, he wrote that Aslan would kill the white witch. So ultimately, he's the one who did it. But Aslan did it in the story. And so he uses this example and he says, and this is, this is one aspect of the message. So don't think just because I said this, you don't have to listen to the message. That is your homework. Listen to this message. But he says, it's as though God wrote all of history and he's reading it. And as he's reading it, it's happening. And so he, he, he does an amazing job of explaining how we can combine, not combine, how we can mesh God's sovereignty with man's responsibility. So we'll pause there and start. Yeah, yeah, start on page 99 next week. All right, let's pray. Father, you are a great God, one whom we can trust, one that continues to show yourself as we diligently seek you. I thank you for the grace, the mercy, the patience, the kindness, the love that you have shown us, that you continue to show us. Please, Lord, light a fire in our hearts so that we would be willing to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and follow you. Help us to see the areas that we are burdened by, that are keeping us from following you as we should. Help us to see the lies that we have believed that prevent us from having a right understanding of who you are and as to how we ought to, ought to live. Lord, guide us by your Spirit so that we would become more like you and that we would help others to do the same. Father, be exalted in these things, we pray. I didn't do it. <laughs>